We have folks back there to take the kids to Children's Church. So you children head to the back of the sanctuary. And Sandy Atkinson and others are going to be leading you. Let's pray together as they leave. Father, we thank you for preparing our hearts through such beautiful music from people who were led by you to write these beautiful songs over centuries of time. And we pray that you'll just take the message of those songs and continue to have them resonate in our minds and hearts, not only in this hour, but in the days ahead as we've been reminded of your saving power. And now, Lord, as we open your word from the Gospel of Luke, we pray that you will speak to us, make the truth of your word very plain to everyone here. And Lord, if there's someone here who needs to make a decision for you, they need to give their life to Jesus. It's no more about other people. It's about their own life. They need, they need your love. They need your forgiveness. Lord, help them to be open to do now what you lead them to do. And we pray, Lord, that when this service comes to an end, we all will have followed your direction and your leadership and that our lives might be fully under your control because of your saving power. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16, a very familiar passage to many. Verses 19 through 31. It is the story of rich man, the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told. And as we look at it, we're going to see the unimaginable sorrow of hell. Now, the word hell is a word that is used so lightly and frivolously today. It's thrown about as a, as a throwaway word, as a curse word. And people don't even think about what they're saying. But there really is a place called hell. And it is a terrible place. It's not a place that God wants anybody to go to. But it is a place that many people will end up in. And we see here in this story that Jesus told a man who ended up in hell. And what it was like. And how he ended up there. And we need to learn from it. Because there's not any reason for anybody here today or anybody in Jefferson City to end up in hell. Because Jesus will save you. He's made it possible for you to spend eternity with him, not separated from him. But we're going to see this uh, story today and what Jesus told. And I would remind you, this is something Jesus said. So, you know, there are those today who will say there is no place called hell and it's just a figment of people's imagination. They scoff at it. They laugh about it. They joke about it. But Jesus was serious about it. And if anybody's going to know about hell, it would be Jesus. And so we really need to take it seriously, what he has to say here. Look at Luke 16, beginning of verse 19, and then we'll dive into it more uh, in depth. But let, let me read the passage first. There was a certain rich man, and these are the words of Jesus. He was telling to his disciples 
to those gathered around. He knew the religious leaders of Israel who hated him were listening. They were always listening to everything he said. So Jesus told this account. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. The word laid there literally means thrown down. So day after day, this beggar was brought and just thrown down there at the gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." The unimaginable sorrow of hell. Jesus here tells us clearly about uh, both heaven and hell. And most of what we know in the scripture about hell, we know from the words of Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus talked about heaven, but Jesus also talked about hell. There is real existence in hell immediately. Upon death. That's the first thing we see in this passage. Now, some say this is a parable that Jesus told. It very well may be. It's the only parable, if that's the case, where Jesus used an actual name for somebody. One of the characters is actually named Lazarus. Some believe that this is not a parable, but an actual account that Jesus is telling about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Either way, we have a lot here to digest about hell. 
Now, if it's a parable, you have to be careful about pressing the specific details of a parable, which is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. Or is that the other way around? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You have to be careful about pressing the details too much. But there's so much here that's so specific. And it jives with other things Jesus said that there's a lot here about the existence, certainly, of this place called hell and what it is like. One thing is very clear, it's real. There's real existence in hell. You know, some people say, well, you live your life, and then when you're dead, you're just dead. You just, you just go to the dirt, you're just like, you know, like an animal dies, and you're just gone. There's no consciousness, there's no suffering, there's nothing, there's no existence. That's, that's a totally unbiblical, unreal point of view. Because it's so clear that there's part of us that is beyond just the physical body. The real us. We are living in a physical body, but the real you is going to last forever. Going to, going to exist forever somewhere. You were created by God in the image of God, and therefore you will have existence somewhere for eternity. The question is where? And here we find, as Jesus began the story, he talks about these two men, a beggar named Lazarus, and then a rich man. And then in verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The Jews referred often to the place where God was as Abraham's bosom, the place of comfort, the place of safety, the place of rest, heaven, as we would call it. And then it says also the rich man also died and was buried. Do you know that whether you're poor or whether you're rich, death is going to come to you just like to everybody else? You can't ward it off. You might can live a little bit longer if you're rich just because you can afford better medical care. But someday it'll all run out. Time will run out. And death will come. The rich man also died. Everybody's going to die someday. And being in torments in Hades. There's no statement of any kind of an intermediary place. Immediately, just as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the Christian. When death comes, if you're not a Christian, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, then you will be in this place that he speaks of in torment. Real existence. Jesus in Matthew 5, 29, he commented about this place. If your right hand offends you, Pluck it out. If your right eye, excuse me, offends you, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is better for you that one of your members perish rather than the whole body should be cast into hell. Into Gehenna is the word that Jesus used in Matthew 5. That's the word Jesus often used for hell. What was Gehenna? Well, there's a valley that's south of Jerusalem, kind of south and west of Jerusalem, called the Valley of Hinnom. 
And it was a place in the Old Testament where the people of Israel, when they were in rebellion, they made their children, some of them, pass through the fire as a sacrifice to the god Molech. And then they were carried away into captivity. And when they came back from captivity, God said that because that place had been so defiled, because they'd sacrificed their children to a false god by making them pass through the fire, that that whole area, that place, would be a, basically a smoldering garbage heap. That would be the place where they, all the refuse and all the garbage would be cast. Often dead animals would be cast there too. And sometimes even people, criminals, people who had no one to take care of them, beggars, their bodies would often be thrown into this place called Gehenna. And that became for Jesus a symbol of what hell is. When you think about a smoldering garbage heap, you would find lots of maggots there and worms working their way through the garbage. And Jesus described hell as a place where the worm dies not, where there is a constant fire and a smoldering. And so this became the image Jesus often used of hell itself. And then over in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Fear not those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Where? In Gehenna, in this place again, hell. Chapter 13 of uh, Matthew, verse 41, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then one more, Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. He shall say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels so if you've ever thought well i just don't know if there really is a place called hell well jesus knew it and he told us over and over and over again so if you want to go through life as if it doesn't exist and deceive yourself nobody can stop you but always know Jesus clearly said there is real existence in this place called hell. There's also there sorrow, great sorrow. There's the sorrow of being separated from the loving and striving presence of God. In verse 26, Jesus said, He's, this is, these are the words of Abraham talking to the rich man. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. A great gulf between heaven and hell, be, be, between the loving, and I, and I phrased it, the striving presence of God and those in hell. Some people say, well, in hell, you're separated from the presence of God. I know what people mean by that, and I, that's true in, in terms of the loving 
wooing, striving presence of God. Here on earth right now, God is seeking to draw all of us to faith. That's what the Bible says. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. He's seeking to draw you to himself, but in hell, no more. It's not that you're totally away from the presence of God. It's just that in hell, the presence of God is the wrath of God, the punishment of God that will be there for all of eternity. But there is no direct loving, striving, no more trying to draw you to himself. You've made your choice. You're cut off by your own decision. God doesn't cast you into hell. He doesn't cut you off. You cut yourself off from him by sin and by refusing to give your life to Jesus Christ. But in hell, there will no longer be God seeking to draw you by his love and grace because it's too late. He gives us this life. And it is an act of his utter grace that he gives us this life to trust him. Uh, it, It would be what we are worthy of if we were immediately cast into hell with no no opportunity of salvation. That's what we deserve. So this idea that somehow God is unjust or wrong because there's a place called hell. No, God is infinitely good and full of grace that anyone should not go to hell. That's the truth. You just have to look at it from a realistic biblical perspective. If you're full of yourself, then you're going to say, well, God, how could you send me to hell? But if you come to know Jesus and you're aware of your sinfulness, your response is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. I'm unworthy. This rich man ended up in hell. And it's a, it's a place of great sorrow because no more does God's spirit strive with those who are in hell. It's also an existence of total and abject darkness. Now, that's not mentioned directly here, but over in 2 Peter 2, 4, we have the, a reference to the angels who sinned. It says, who were cast down to hell, delivered into chains of darkness. Also, Jude 1, 6, the same phrase is found, in everlasting chains of darkness. So at the same time, it is a place of flame and smoldering and torment it is also a place of utter darkness i can't explain that to you but it is a place of utter darkness it makes sense because who is the light of the world jesus and we're in darkness spiritually until jesus comes into our life and in hell it's utter spiritual darkness And so the suffering, the sorrow is unimaginable. These are just words to try to help us understand it that Jesus gave. But yet they don't completely explain it. And then in verse 24, there's the sorrow of existence in the torment of flames. Verse 24, 
The rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The torment is on and on and on. Again, think of Gehenna, that valley, that place, the garbage heap, the smoldering fire that never went out, and all of the filth there. That is the image Jesus gives us of what hell is like. And what a contrast. Lazarus, and if you notice it says about him, in verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. No mention of him being buried. He just died. And then spiritually, his spirit was carried to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, Jesus specifically says. So it's very possible that the beggar Lazarus, who loved the Lord, that his body ended up being thrown into Gehenna, not hell, but the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, but his spirit went to heaven. What a contrast that the rich man who was buried, his body, oh, he probably had a great funeral. You know, he probably had a beautiful casket. No, I mean, it's not exactly like we do, but you can be sure he had a real funeral. Big time. He was rich. But did that help him go to heaven? No. His body was buried, but his spirit went to the real Gehenna. Hell, where the fire never goes out. He was tormented in that flame. And then it continues. If you look at verse 25, there's the sorrow of what might have been. Abraham said, son, remember, remember. He's saying to the rich man in hell, remember. They'll be able to remember what life was like. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. There's the tender address, son, but there's nothing that can change the reality. Remember what might have been. What if you had given your life to God? What if you had recognized the authority of God in your life during your lifetime? What if you had let God use you for his glory? What might have been? Remember your lifetime. Now, I know you hear people talk about what they're going to do when they die. You even hear some people brag and boast about they're going to go to hell. You ever heard anybody say that? Well, I know I'm going to go to hell, and I'm going to have a good time there. No, you're not. You may be going to go to hell, but you're not going to have a good time there. It's not on your terms. It's not on your terms. But you are going to remember, and perhaps we don't know, how much we will remember. But what if God lets us remember the person in hell? What if God lets that person remember every opportunity they had to give their life to Jesus and they didn't do it? 
remember. There is the sorrow of the loss of power and control. This man, you know, he was the captain of his own ship. He was a wealthy man. But even people who aren't wealthy, who obstinately turn against God and say, I don't want what God has for me. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care what God thinks. I don't care if there is a God. They're going to lose control. Because once you draw your last breath, you have no control over what happens. Your decision is made. And look at this rich man. R.C. Sproul points out, and I thought it was, uh, I'd never seen, never noticed it before. But R.C. Sproul points out that twice here, you see this rich man is still trying to order Lazarus around. He's still trying to tell him what to do through Abraham. Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Verse 24. And then verse 27, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house to tell my brothers. He's still trying to order Lazarus around, but he doesn't have the right to do that anymore. He's not in control. And so there is, to some degree, still this arrogance and this obstinance, even in this rich man that's described, still trying to. Tell Lazarus, the poor beggar, what to do. But Lazarus was in heaven. He wasn't at the beck and call of the rich man anymore. He didn't have to listen to what the rich man had to say. There's a loss of control. And unable to share the gospel with his family. Do you think this rich man ever wanted the gospel to be shared with his brothers while he was alive? Did he ever tell his brothers about God while he was alive? Oh no, but now in hell he wants them to know all about the truth. And what's the response from Abraham? They already have the truth. The only truth that can save is already found right here in the Bible. And even if somebody rose from the dead and went to them, they wouldn't believe any more than they'll believe if... They read and hear the truth of, of Moses and the prophets, the Word of God. So if you're here today and thinking, well, I just need a little bit more from God before I'll know whether I want to give my life to Jesus or not, you already have all you need. And you have all you're going to get. And you know what? Someone has come from the dead, and that's Jesus. He has risen from the dead. And what happened when Jesus walked the earth? There were still people who saw him in the flesh and they rejected him anyway. So if you're, if you're waiting for something else to convince you, your waiting may be too long. Because you already have the truth. You've heard it this morning. Jesus saves. He's the only way. And if you'll call out to him, he will forgive you and come into your life. And you'll be on your way to heaven, not to hell. That's the truth of God's word. There was a poem written many years ago. As far as I could find, the author is unknown. Now, I know Adrian Rogers preached a famous sermon 
with a title close to this, but that's not what this is. This is a poem written, I think, long before that, called Five Minutes After I Die. Now, the truth is, everything that is said here is true, not five minutes, but one second after you die. But it's effective to say five minutes. So listen. Loved ones will weep o'er my silent face. Dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Shadows in darkness will fill the place five minutes after I die. But the faces that sorrow I will not see. The voices that murmur will not reach me. But where, oh where, will my spirit be five minutes after I die? Quickly the years of my life have flown, gathering treasure I thought my own. There I must reap from the seed I have sown five minutes after I die. Not to repair the good I lack, fixed to the goal of my chosen track. No room to repent, no turning back, five minutes after I die. Now I can stifle convictions stirred. Now I can silence the voice oft heard. Then the fulfillment of God's sure word. Five minutes after I die. Mated for A with my chosen throng. Long is eternity, oh so long. Then woe is me if my soul be wrong. Five minutes after I die. Oh, what a fool. Hard word, but true. Passing the Savior with death in view. Doing a deed I can ne'er undo. Five minutes after I die. If I am flinging a fortune away. If I am wasting salvation's day. Just is my sentence. My soul shall say. Five minutes after I die. God help you choose. Your eternal state depends on your choice. You dare not wait. You must choose now. It will be too late. Five minutes after you die. It'll be too late. Dr. Peter Marshall preached at the U.S. Naval Academy on the morning of December 7th, 1941. He'd been asked to preach there. And, of course, that was Pearl Harbor Day, right? That was the day Pearl Harbor took place, December 7th, 1941. Nobody there knew it was happening at the time. The word had not yet reached the U.S. mainland And Peter Marshall preached to the U.S. Naval Academy, and in it he told this story. In a house of which I know, a little boy, the only son, was ill of an incurable disease. Month after month, the mother had tenderly read to him, nursed him, and played with him, hoping to keep him from realizing the dreaded finality of the doctor's diagnosis. But as the weeks went by and he grew no better, the little fellow gradually began to understand the meaning of the term death. And he too knew that soon he would die. One day the mother had been reading to him the stirring tales of King Arthur 
and his knights of the round table, and of that last glorious battle in which so many fair knights met their deaths. As she closed the book, the boy lay silent for a moment and then asked the question that had been weighing on his heart. Mother, what is it like to die? Mother, does it hurt? Quickly, tears sprang to her eyes. She fled to the kitchen, supposedly to tend something on the stove. She knew it was a question, though, with deep significance, and she knew she had to answer him. She leaned for an instant against the kitchen door and breathed a hurried prayer that the Lord would not let her break down in front of her boy, that he would tell her, that God would tell her what to say. And God did. Immediately, she knew how to explain it to him. Kenneth, she said, as she returned to his room, you remember how when you were smaller, you would play so hard all day, and when night came, you were too tired even to undress and would tumble into mom's bed and fall asleep. But in the morning, much to your surprise, you would wake up and find yourself in your own room, in your own bed. You were there because someone had loved you and taken care of you. Your daddy had come with big, strong arms and carried you to your own room. Kenneth, for you, death is like that. We just wake up one morning to find ourselves in the other room, our own room, where we belong, because the Lord Jesus loves us. The lad's shining, trusting face looked up into hers and told her that there would be no more fear, only love and trust in his little heart as he went to meet the Father in heaven. He never questioned again. And several weeks later, he just fell asleep and went to the Father's house. What a contrast to the unimaginable sorrow of hell. If you will give your life to Jesus, then death for you, when it comes, you'll just wake up in the Father's house and not in that terrible place reserved for the devil and his angels. God help you choose your eternal state depends on your choice. You dare not wait you must choose now. It will be too late. Five minutes after you die. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us absolute certainty that your love is so great, your grace is so strong that if we will ask you to forgive us of our sin. You will do that. You will forgive us and make us your own children. And we'll be ready to stand in your presence. So, Lord, if there's someone here today who's thought about giving their life to you, but they never have, or they're not sure they're ready to die, then help them right now to say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. 
I want to make you my Savior and my Lord. And we know that simple prayer of faith. You will answer. And may we all leave here today knowing that we're ready to go to heaven. We pray you'll work among us now. May your will be done. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our invitation.